Would you open your, your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 22? We're in the final, we're literally on the final page of the Bible. And we've been talking about uh, uh, the book of Revelation for, if you go all the way back to the spring, we did half of this series in the spring, and then we've been doing uh, the second half in the fall. This is part 16. And, and uh it's been a timely series, a relevant series that our pastor has been bringing to us. And um, I, it's not been a, a, a series that we reacted to what's going on in the world, but I think it was just like timely that we have been talking about some of these things in light of current events. And today we get to talk about the good stuff. And by the way, full disclosure, I didn't say this in the first service, I tried to get out of all of these sermons. Like when we meet as a teaching team, I would make outlandish comments like, don't you guys agree that like Biden is the antichrist? And like, he's like, no, and you're not getting out of it. Like, so. Then I try to say Trump is the Antichrist and that made it worse. And he's like, no, like you're still preaching. So anyways, but so here I am. But by the way, neither of those guys are the Antichrist, just so you know. So um, didn't plan to go there at all. <laughs> We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about the good stuff, if I can put it that way. Jesus, can we agree that like people's last words are probably important and worth considering? Can we agree? Um, if I had one opportunity to share with my kids or my family or our youth ministry or this church or anyone that I cared for, if I had one final opportunity to, to tell them something, I would probably try to think of what the most important thing I could share would be. And Jesus, his final words in scripture um, I think are worth considering. And I don't know that they're the most important, but I think they are important and they're worth considering. And I would like to pick up our reading in Revelation 22, verse 12. And uh, we're gonna focus on verse 17, but I'm gonna start in verse 12. And I'm reading from the ESV version. It says there, "'Behold, I am coming soon, "'bringing my recompense or my reward with me "'to repay each one for what he has done. "'I am the Alpha and the Omega, "'the first and the last, "'the beginning and the end. "'Blessed are those who wash their robes "'so that they may have the right to the tree of life.'" And by the way, the tree of life was, was in the garden of Eden and now it's in heaven and it symbolizes eternal life. Anyone who eats of that tree has eternal life, life without end. And then he says, they have a right to that tree of life and that they might enter the city by the gates, speaking of heaven. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And then the next verse kind of pivots. And it says this, the spirit and the bride, speaking of the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Or another way to think of it is to take or drink of the water of the life freely. There's no payment required. Just come and partake of what Christ offers. And what he's saying here, this is a metaphor for life of reward, life with peace, life without pain, life without suffering, life with joy. 
eternal life. And when we, as Christians, think about heaven, we, our minds may run to those verses that talk about there are, neither will be there be more crying or death or pain, and he will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. We, we talk about those things, but the reality is we're in the here and now. And we don't know exactly what's going to happen next. And there's a lot of different opinions on like the rapture, okay? Is it like, like before the tribulation? Is there a tribulation? Is it halfway through? Is it at the end? And I already like talked about all the questions we have about persons and uh, woes and bulls and all these things like in it it can be confusing and overwhelming. And what we've tried to do in this series is boil all that down and say, here's what really matters. Are we ready for the day of the Lord? And when I use that term or that phrase, the day of the Lord, I'm kind of encompassing all of uh, these events together in the sense that the day of the Lord is the time when evil will be quarantined once and for all. Evil will be, will be put aside once and for all, will no longer affect those who are in Christ. And the reality is we live, even as believers, we live in this broken, fallen world and there's still, there's still consequences, maybe scars we carry from our own sins. Maybe there's things that people have done to us. Maybe there's things going on in the world that weigh on us and we still live in a fallen, broken world, but there's a day coming where all of that will be over. And then there's a day that Satan will be, will be judged and, and, and the scriptures say thrown into the lake of fire. That's literally the, 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 the verbiage. And, and those who are unrighteous, those who have rejected and suppressed the truth and willfully rebelled against God, they will share in the same destruction. But for the righteous and for those who are called by the name of Jesus, we will be rewarded. And so when I think, when I say the day of the Lord, I'm kind of encompassing all those elements together. And when I think about the day of the Lord, and this is just my logic here. And so if you don't like my logic, that's okay. Just measure it against the scriptures and maybe email me later if I'm wrong, which I'm okay with. And I admit that I don't have everything down pat. I don't have every answer that you probably wish I had or, and I don't maybe have every right opinion but in my mind, when we think of the day of the Lord, it, it kind of automatically divides us into at least three groups of people. The first group is this group of people that I have been a part of this group at one point in my life where I did not consider the day of the Lord seriously. I did not think about it seriously, especially in my younger years. It just did not, it was not on my radar, so to speak. I was interested in who won at practice or football or you know what we were doing that weekend as a group of friends or what movie was coming out. And I was interested in a host of other things. And I just didn't think about the day of the Lord as a teenager, especially. And even into my college years, there were some things that I knew were important, but I didn't consider the day of the Lord seriously. And what happens when somebody doesn't consider the day of the Lord, or maybe I would say ignorant of the day of the Lord, and I don't mean stupid or unintelligent. I just mean someone who doesn't know about it very much. It makes the day of the Lord irrelevant. And that's the first group of people. The first group of people is ignorance makes the day of the Lord irrelevant. If you don't know about it, if you don't consider it, it's not relevant to your life. Nothing you do is in context of eternity. Everything you live for and work for and even play for is in light of what is temporary. And um, 
I hate to bring this up, and, and this is again not in my notes, but my football team breaks my heart every season. Every season. It's getting super old, okay? And uh, I was um, watching some highlights of my team. I'm not gonna name them. And, uh, but the students were chanting fire and then they like, were like saying the coach's name. And uh, I agreed on some level. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. I really think that's a good idea. But, but I began to think about that guy. I'm like, how would you like 100,000 people chanting fire and your name, like publicly? And I began to think about like, just like what really matters? Do football games really matter in light of eternity? But yet there's some people that is life to them. And I'm not talking about fans. I'm talking about coaches and players and, and the, there's billions and billions of dollars poured into just one sport. And like, there's a host of other areas that I could talk about from the entertainment industry and all the things that go into our Western culture and people are caught up in this in, and that's what they're living for. And it's so temporary, it's so futile. And if that's what we're living for, it makes the day of the Lord completely irrelevant. It has no, it has no impact on our lives. But there's some sobering scripture and, and I have struggled in, in my delivery already of this, this uh, in the first service and in my preparation. I don't wanna be the pastor who manipulates you, who coerces you, who emotionally like, fools you in some way into uh, some kind of spiritual trap. I'm not interested in that. And by the way, God himself is not a manipulative father who just sets up like a, a, a spiritual obstacle course and just wants to see if you and I can jump through it for his own entertainment. He's not interested in that. What he's interested in is a relationship with us and he knows what's best for us. He knows how we are designed to ultimately live and it's not here on earth, it's in heaven forever. It's with him, it's in relationship with him forever. And by the way, eternal life does not begin when we get to heaven. Eternal life begins when we exercise faith in, in Christ. So, so eternal life can begin today if it hasn't already. But, if, but I would be remiss if I didn't warn you and because there's some passages of scripture that make it clear that the day of the Lord should be seriously considered. The first one that came to mind, and I'm gonna read it for you, Romans 1.18, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Everybody say all. Now I did a Greek study on the word all, and you know what it means? It means all, like, like <laughs> there's no exceptions. All ungodliness, not just some of it, all of it. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by who, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a key phrase. Who suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that might have been made so that they are without excuse. This is how I interpret that passage. And again, if you disagree, let me know. But God is the perfect God. He is the perfect judge of the heart. I'm not. I can't look into your heart and life and mind and, and, and put you on a, a spiritual good evil scale. I can't do that. But God knows perfectly. He also has 
what we call grace that makes up the difference between someone's knowledge and their performance. God is not interested in our perfect performance, but what he is interested in is our love. He is interested in knowing us. And there are those of us who are sitting in this room and we have the scriptures and we have access and we have knowledge. And because we have those things before us, then some maybe more is required of us and how we exercise our faith. But there are people that do not have the scriptures and they're in a place where maybe it's not even in, in written in their own language yet. And they're, they look around them and they see the ocean or they see the stars and they don't know fully what Jesus Christ has done for them, but a simple act of faith that says there's something out there, there's someone out there, there's a God out there, whatever, that may be all that is required for them to have eternal reward in heaven. I'm not the perfect judge, but here's what I know. It is completely 100% fair. And no one is gonna stand before God with a legitimate excuse that says, I should be in, but you kept me out. It may be this much that is required for one person and maybe this much that's required for me. I don't know exactly how all that works, but here's what I do know, is that if I suppress the truth, if we willfully suppress the truth, I'm not going to stand before God on the day of the Lord with a legitimate excuse. I'm going to know. I'm going to know that what I receive is fair. In fact, I would make the argument that what we receive is not fair because I see a God in scripture who has pursued us and loved us far, far, far beyond what we deserve. And his grace is available to every single one of us. But if we do not consider the day of the Lord, it will not be relevant to our lives if we do not take it seriously. So that's the first group. Secondly, um, there's another group. And I would say these are people who know, have some idea of the day of the Lord, but they just choose for whatever reason to live for themselves. If you're taking notes, here's what I would say. Knowledge makes the day of the Lord a day of fear. Let me talk about fear for a second. So fear, in my mind, there's two kinds of fear. There's a fear of, like there's a healthy respect. Like there's times when I come home and there's a fear, uh, there's a fear of what I am gonna have to tell my wife. <laughs> and there's a fear, like, like it, we, we have a very loving relationship, but I'm like, okay, like I need to be ready for whatever she's asked me to do, right? That's not the fear I'm talking about. There may be a fear of like a good father. Maybe, maybe he's set a deadline for his son or his daughter, or maybe he's set a requirement and there's a fear of discipline, but there's not a fear of dread or disdain or guilt or shame. Maybe it's, it's just a healthy fear or a respect maybe is a better word. But there is a kind of fear where you know that what you have done is going to result in consequence. Maybe in school, I remember, you know, not having my major project done on time and worrying about the, the ramifications that the professor might take, okay? And so, now I just, I passed, just so you guys know, but um, I remember the stress of being a student and missing a deadline or, or fearing a deadline. And you know what, I did not wanna go and be anywhere around that teacher. I avoided them, there was, there was dread, okay? Um, I think that there's a, a group of people, and I've found myself in this group as well, that has a knowledge of the day of the Lord, but for whatever reason, 
has chosen to live for themselves. And so instead of a peace with God, there's a dread of God. There's a distance. There's a, there's a kind of tension in the relationship. If you can even say there's a relationship and there's, there's a, a fear that's not a respect. It's not healthy. It's, it's one of avoidance. I don't want anything to do with what God has to say to me. And maybe there's even a fear of how he looks at me and all of those things. And here's what, what, what results in that. First of all, there's some lies that the enemy will tell you that are just simply not true. He will try to rob you of the promises of God. Maybe you've entered into a relationship with him and you feel like you're not performing and all those things. Again, God does not care about our perfect performance. He, he just wants to know us. And so don't buy into the lies that you're not good enough because Christ's action on the cross says, that it just makes that irrelevant. He said, I love you in spite of what you have done. But here's what could result in dread and maybe should result in dread is if we're playing around with sin. If, if there are things that we know are wrong and destructive and against the, the, the laws of God, and we're, we're, we have an open door to those things in our lives and we're, we're messing around with it in a manner that we know we should not, that may create some fear. And there are some things that we just universally, there's, there's a, a moral code, if you will, even in, in cultures that aren't like, quote unquote, impacted by Christianity, like every culture knows that stealing, lying, cheating, murder, those things are wrong. Lust, um, I, I look at our culture and we have an over-sexualized culture for sure in our Western context. And what we are messing around with, even in our entertainment and all of those things, if we're playing with those things and there's some guilt, it's probably legit especially if we know that God has says, hey, I've called you to live holy. We just sang the song, holy, holy, holy. And God has called us to be holy. And again, I wanna emphasize, this is not based on our actions and our performance. It's, it's our heart being set apart to him. Our focus is not on what we can get out of this world, but our focus is on him. And we're willing to allow him to set us apart and call us to be different. There should be a difference in the life of a Christian than the, than the life of someone who's a non-Christian. There should be some visible difference. Jesus said it this way. He said, if you are connected to me, I am the vine, you are the branch, you will bear much. There should be fruit, there should be evidence. And it will look different maybe from person to person, but that should be relevant. And if there is no fruit in our lives, if we have a knowledge of Jesus Christ, if we have a knowledge of the day of the Lord and there's no fruit, we're playing with sin and it's squelching, it's, it's choking out the fruit that, that should be there, then that may make the day of the Lord a one of fear. Another area that I would say can result in this is being just apathetic in our spiritual disciplines. This is another area that I personally have wrestled with and I've even preached about it uh, at, at times where there is a, a clear, there's a clear call in scripture to live differently, but it takes effort, it takes work. Now this is not earning our salvation. This is not earning forgiveness. Jesus has already done that work for us. But here's what I have realized in my own personal life. And if you, again, if you don't agree with this, send me an email. 
But here's what I've noticed in my own life is when I'm apathetic about the things of God, when I am not in his word on a regular basis, when I am not in regular prayer, when I am not in regular worship, when I disconnect myself from communities of believers, small groups, mentors, people who are pouring into me, temptation always gets stronger. Temptation always grows. And I've yet to meet someone who is, who is taking the spiritual discipline seriously where they are regularly being filled by the word of God, when they're, re- when they're regularly in worship and communication with their savior and their affection for Christ is, is something that is important to them. And they, they make time in their day to spend moments maybe even extended moments with Jesus just because they want to to be with him and, and know him and talk with him and receive encouragement and guidance and support. I never find those people struggling, at least not like I, I have. Here's what, I've, here's what I'm trying to say is that when we take the, the, the disciplines of knowing Jesus Christ intentionally, it results in power, it results in strength, it results in freedom. Any relationship, any relationship that you have, I don't care if it's a friend, a family member, a parent, a sibling, maybe it's a spouse, try not talking to them for a while. What happens? Men, just try not talking to your wife for a few days. See how that goes, okay? There's probably gonna be some distance. There's probably gonna be some tension. My, my family lives in Pennsylvania. I grew up in Western PA, north of Pittsburgh, and So my parents still live there and I have a brother that lives in Ohio and a sister that lives in Alabama. And we spend money at times that we don't have to be together because we value the relationship. I thank God for FaceTime and and phones because it closes the distance. And there'll be times when, excuse me, when my parents will say, hey, can we FaceTime the kids? We wanna see our grandkids. And so we set up times on their birthdays or or even just randomly where they can talk and communicate with their grandparents because we realize, we recognize subconsciously that communication always enhances the relationship. Time spent always enhances the relationship. And so if the phrase spiritual disciplines freaks you out and you, and, and you begin to think legalistic and you say, well, I have to perform or jump through some hoops. And if I don't, God's not gonna be pleased with me. And then the relationship is gonna sour. It's not that. Spend time with them. That's what it is. Spend time with God. Maybe, maybe it's in the morning, maybe it's at lunch, maybe it's in the evening. It, it, there's really no like right, wrong way to do it. It's just that he wants to be with you. Take him with you throughout your day. That's what I'm talking about when I say, don't become apathetic in your spiritual disciplines. He wants to know you, spend time with your savior. See, if we don't do those things, our, our love, the way Jesus said it in the first part of Revelation was, your love has become lukewarm. He's like, you're neither hot, you're neither cold, you're lukewarm. And, and the reaction is, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Anybody like tried to drink a, a lukewarm cup of coffee recently? That's what you wanna do. It's just not good. And he's saying like, hey, I want to know you, I want to be with you. And you don't seem to be, you just seem to be apathetic about your affection for me is cold, it's lukewarm, it's, it's off. There's not this closeness between us. And if there's not a closeness, if there's not that 
affection for Christ, if your love has grown cold, then you may have knowledge of the day of the Lord, but it may be a day of fear. And so obviously, I want to be in a place where it is not a day of fear. And so some of you are like, Matt, I thought you said this was the good stuff. It's been pretty negative so far. So when do we get to the good stuff? Okay, here we go. Um, The third group of people, this is how I would describe them. Those who know about the day of the Lord and put their faith in him. This is what it results in. Um, If you're taking notes, faith makes the day of the Lord a day uh, of reward. See, for those who have repented fully and make no mistake, the gospel is, it is what Christ has done for us. It is his work on the cross. It is what he did to prove his power over death by coming out of the grave and, and, and making sure that we knew that, but also had a way to know him. But there is a response. If we understand who Jesus is, there should be a response to who he is and what he has done. And the scriptural response, the scriptural word is repentance. If we believe, if we believe that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, it says that we will be saved. Well, what's the evidence of that belief? Is that our life will take a different direction. Our life will take a different direction. That's literally what the word repent means is that our life, wherever, whatever we're headed, it will will be reversed. We will not continue to pursue pursue apathy. We will not continue to pursue sin willfully. We may make mistakes mistakes along the way and none of us is perfect. And in our human frailty, we may even stumble and fall in sin. But But the message of the gospel is if we are directionally on point with him, if we're moving in his direction, we have an advocate with the father. We have an advocate even in our sin. And he sees, the, he sees our heart and he is there to pick us up and to keep us close to him. And that, my friends, is peace. That is, that is security, that is assurance. And so if we are living in that way, if, if our faith is fully placed on him and not on, our, on ourselves, then the day of the Lord is not a day of irrelevance. It's not a day of fear. It's a day of reward. How many of you wish you had the power to fix everything right now? Like, what would you do? Can this is not in my notes, but current events, everything that's happening in the Middle East, we've seen the headlines. And I was kind of um, talking with my wife one night and I was like, <laughs> I was being a little bit tongue in cheek. And so I'm gonna be a little bit tongue in cheek right now with you. But I said, you know, like if only we had like this, there was like this being that was infinitely more intelligent than us and like infinitely more powerful and like could see into every person's heart and know exactly like who was good, who was evil, who was like, you know, innocent, who was not. And if they had some supernatural way to somehow divide the righteous from the evil and then totally quarantine and deal with evil perfectly and justly and then reward those or save those who, who didn't deserve any kind of punishment, like that's like, isn't, that seems like a pretty good solution, right? Well, that's what we have. It just hasn't happened yet. Do you guys have that picture um, back there? So um, this was my view on Tuesday morning. Um, that's our esteemed middle school pastor, uh, Bobby Bradford. Um, him and I and a couple other guys from the church, we went elk hunting. Um, 
it wasn't so much hunting. It felt like more like a game of hide and seek with elk and they won. The elk won so good. So anyways, um, we went up, uh, I think I went up Sunday night and uh, Monday it just totally rained and, and we hiked around, didn't see much in the rain, got soaked. Tuesday, we had kind of circled as like, this is the best day. Like this is our best day to hunt. And so Ryan asked me, he's like, Matt, what do you think you're, where do you think you're gonna hunt Tuesday morning? And I'm like, I'm gonna go where the elk are. That's my plan. Like that's my whole strategy. And so where I thought the elk would be was this trail. And uh, Bobby and I were like, okay, it's gonna be kind of a hike. We're gonna hike up from the bottom. And uh, it was about two miles. And uh, walking and hiking is like my least favorite thing to do ever. And so you know how committed I was to this idea. And so like we hike up this trail and it took us maybe an hour, 45 minutes to get up to where we wanted to be. And as we started hiking, we're like, man, it's kind of foggy. Like the higher you, like when we look up there, it's kind of foggy. And uh, we're like, yeah, but like, you know, once the sun comes out and cause we'd started before uh, daylight. And uh, once the sun comes out, there's this assumption that the fog would kind of be burned off by the sun we'd be able to see. And it actually might be even to our advantage cause we can kind of sneak up there and the elk can't see us. And we're kind of in this fog and then it's gonna burn off. And then boom, there's gonna be like a thousand elk and we're gonna be like, just like, this is gonna be so perfect, okay? Well, we get up there and at like nine o'clock, it's still foggy. And then at 10 o'clock, it's still foggy. But Bobby took a nap, I think. I ate lunch at 9.30. Like, um, and so we look up and we're like, it's kind of clearing. It looks like a, like a little bit of a blue sky. And then we're like, you know, like maybe we should hike up to a higher elevation. And maybe if we just go a little higher, then we'll kind of get above the fog and we'll be able to see a little better. We tried that, it just seemed to get worse, okay? And then we had these radios and our hunting partners were like, hey, and I'm a little embarrassed, but um, our code names were Batman and Robin, okay? So <laughs> I admit we could have come up with something better, but we heard like, hey, Batman and Robin, like, uh, we, found some, we found this huge elk, like we're gonna go kind of, we're gonna go, try to get it. And I'm like, where are they? Like, cause they were close to where we were, but they were on a different ridge. And we're like, how did they see anything? Because the fog we were in seemed to extend from where we are to like Canada. And so it seemed like fog forever. And we, it just wasn't working out. Our whole plan was ruined because we couldn't see. In fact, at one point I said to Bobby, I'm, I'm gonna walk up this trail and I'm gonna count my steps. I'm gonna see how far we can see. And I got to step 65 and turned around and I knew where he was. I could barely make, make out of shape. By step 70, like totally disappeared. So we could see maybe 60 yards, okay? That was it. And we were like, do we leave? Do we stay? Do we go? Do we wait? You know, we go up higher. Do we go lower? What do we do? There was just indecision. There's a little bit of like, man, like they're seeing elk. Why aren't we seeing elk? Like what? And there's like, oh, I'm wasting time. Like I should probably be working on my sermon for Sunday. Like, why am I like up here on this mountain? And this is like, what, what, what am I doing with my life? I'm a, you know, like all this, you know. <laughs> God's obviously on the side of the elk. And so why am I trying to kill an elk? Maybe that's wrong, I don't know. So you just begin to question your whole life basically when you're in a fog. Okay, show the next picture. So this is Ryan and Tyler and their kids. This is the same morning, same day. 
they were higher on a different mountain. They were above the fog. Like those mountains, like where the sun, they could see the sunrise and all that. That's like 65 miles. We could see 65 feet, okay? Like they could, their perspective was completely different than ours. And here's obviously the, just the basic idea that I, I wanna make sure that we understand. Here on earth, it's as if we're in a fog. We've been hiking up this trail and God has clearly said, this is the way I want you to go, but it's led us to a cloud and we can't see what's next. The scriptures talk about seeing through a glass darkly, but God has a different perspective than us. And by the way, I think that's, that's in his mercy and in his kindness and in his grace, because the human heart is not designed to carry all the things that God can see. And so what he sees, we're not designed to know. But what it means is that he knows exactly where we need to be. He, need, he knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly where we need to go. And he's just asking for us to trust him. Amen. See, in, in that moment, it would have been really, really nice if Ryan and Tyler would have gotten on the radio and said, hey, we can see where you should go. Just go up here and then you'll be out of the fog. They didn't do that, okay? Kind of burning up my friends a little bit, sorry. They may have tried, but we had terrible radio reception. So maybe it just didn't come through. But the point is God does have a way to communicate with us. And all I'm trying to inspire you and, and show you is that, yeah, you may be in a fog. Maybe it's a fog of loneliness, depression, anxiety, pain, uh, suffering, uh, you know, just indecision. Stay the course. Trust the perspective that God has. A reward is sure. The day of the Lord is coming. Just because we don't see it or feel it or sense it now doesn't mean it's not coming. And you and I are only called to just stay in communication with him, stay connected to him, stay close to him and trust his perspective. I thought about how to close and I wasn't sure how to do that. Um, uh, this might come as a surprise, but pastors and speakers and preachers have this pressure to come up with really cool, interesting, funny stories that perfectly communicate the gospel. And I'm just not that good sometimes. So what I thought I'd do to close is just share a story with you that Jesus shared. Because here's the kind of the main point for today. And if you're taking notes, here it is. It says to have peace about the return of Jesus requires that we live with him today. To have peace about the return of Jesus requires that we live with him today. And Jesus shared this story. You've, you've no doubt heard it if you've been around church for very long. If you haven't heard it, I'd just like to recap it for you. So in Eastern Western, or excuse me, Eastern ancient culture, um, what was traditional, especially with Jewish culture was that when the father died, that, that the sons would get an inheritance. And the, for whatever reason, um, this son, and I don't know if this is a true story or a story that Jesus just created to illustrate a point, but he told the story of a son who went to his father and said, you know what? I know that when you die, I'm supposed to receive this money, this inheritance, but I don't wanna wait. I want my money now. I want my inheritance now so that I can go do what I want today. And so the father grants his son's request and the son goes off and the, the scriptures um, describe what he did delicately, but he basically just lived a life of just indulgence, self, pleasure, sin, whatever, and um, just wasted it. 
And he comes to this point where he's literally sitting in a place of filth. He's uh, like feeding pigs and he's starving and it's just, and he starts to think about home and he begins to think about what it'd be like to go home because he's obviously in the wrong. He's the one who, who broke the relationship between him and the father. And he's the one who asked for the inheritance and, and he took it and squandered it and wasted it. But where he is now is so bad that he's like, man, if I could just go home and I could convince my father not to be a son anymore, but just to be a servant, just to be an employee, a slave, just to be in his house in any level would be better than where I'm at today. And so he kind of gathers his courage. He probably like thinks about what he's gonna say to his dad, you know, and he swallows his pride and he starts the journey home. And in verse 20 of Luke 15, this is what it says. And it says, he rose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and bring a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead, is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. See, Jesus is coming back to reward us, but what I want to, where we should be living, where I want to live, where I want to be, I want to be home with him already. I mentioned those three groups of people. If we're, if we're already home, if we're already in relationship with Christ, we've already walked that road and we've already like come to the Father. And we said, hey, I know I messed up, but I, I just wanna be where you are. And he's already rewarded us and he's brought us in and he's called us by name and he's given us a new identity and a new purpose and a new way to live. And our responsibility, if you're in that group, you're already home, you do have a, a, a responsibility. And I would say the primary responsibility is to live in such a way that those who haven't experienced what home is like yet, to tell them how great it is, to show them how great it is. If you're someone who has knowledge about the day of the Lord and you just haven't made it home, you know that there's a home, but you just haven't pulled together yourself yet to to take the steps necessary, I wanna invite you. God is not angry with you. He's not disappointed in you. There's a lie of the enemy that says, yeah, you you messed up. You, You took the inheritance, you squandered it, you lived for self, you broke his heart all the things that he might say, and he might even say, you do not deserve the reward of the father. You should stay where you are. You deserve the, the loneliness you have, the depression you have. You deserve the divorce. You deserve whatever is wrong in your life, the pain, the suffering, the, the, you deserve it. And in some ways that might actually ring true because we are the ones who have messed up. We are the ones who walked away. And so when the enemy slides in and says, this is what you deserve, we kind of agree. Do not buy into that. The father doesn't care. He just wants you to come home. He wants you to come home. And he's saying, hey, I'm coming soon to you, but I need you to come home to me first because he's coming to deal with rebellion. He's coming to deal with evil. He's coming to deal with wrath. And he's saying, I love you. I'm calling you out. 
come home. There's always mercy and grace offered by the Father. It's beyond what we could comprehend, but it's available to every single one of us, no matter what we've done, no matter where we are, it's available. And then if you're sitting here today and you're like, I didn't even know there was a home. I've just been wandering around. This is just totally new to me. The message is the same. The Father is calling. In fact, I would like to read um, some verses. Um, I have some other notes that I don't have time to share, but the verse that we read in verse 17 says, the bride say, come, let the one who hears come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price or drink of it freely. When I was a um, high school student, my summer job was roofing. And and Western Pennsylvania, 90% humidity, we'd have hot days and sometimes approaching 100 degrees and we'd be tearing off those shingles. And I remember one time laying a thermometer on the roof and it was like well over 120 degrees on the roof. It was like burning us through our jeans. Like we had to wear gloves just to keep from getting burned. And I remember um, just just longing for a water break, okay? And uh, when I was a kid, you just drank it right out of the hose. I don't know if that's okay anymore, but we just drank it right out of the hose. And uh, so... When there, was, when there was time for a water break and you're hot and you're thirsty and you've been working hard, there's nothing better. And I, would, I remember tipping up that water jug and I didn't care if I spilled some, I didn't care if it went over my head, down my face, down my chest, it didn't matter because it was that refreshing, it was that good. And life lived separate from Christ, life lived separate from God is just not the way any of us were created to live. And it results in in spiritual, emotional, relational thirst. And we try to quench that thirst with all the things of this life. And in this country, we are a blessed country where comfort and pleasure is literally at our fingertips, sometimes right through the screen and in our pocket. And we have the ability to satisfy those appetites really quickly and, and really easily, but they leave us wanting. And what Christ offers is a water, a living water that in his words to the woman at the well, you will never thirst again. It's fully satisfying. And so my plea to you is if you didn't know that existed, it does. And it's found in Jesus Christ alone. And if you have questions, we'd love to talk with you about how to enter in, to come and to drink freely of what he offers. And if you're sitting here today and you've experienced that, help us out, show others what that means, show others how to access it. That's what we're here for. We're in a fog, but he has the perspective. We wanna live our lives in, in faith, not fearing the day of the Lord. Not, it's not a day of irrelevance, but we're gonna live with anticipation because it will be a day of reward. Amen?